welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week it is the 10th win Wednesday of the 2019 season. Right now, C.J. Beathard might be preparing for his own personal Everest, imitating Lamar Jackson. And with me this week to tell us all the things he'd miss while taking a selfie, it's Rich Madrid. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> it's going great, man. Can you believe that Dwayne Haskins did not and could not get into the very first victory formation of his career because he was taking selfies with the crowd? I that just that's so perfect to me with uh that whole organization. Everything from how they've, you know, treated everything in the past with Shanahan and everything and how bad they sucked this year and just it just seems perfect that Keenum would have to run out there at the last second to take the to take the final snap. That's just I was dying when I when I saw that. Oh man, it was so hilarious. It just it's everyone's like, where where's he at? Where's he at? What the hell? I just it was it was pretty phenomenal. But uh, this is this is a fun fun game because man, that that game. Of course, we're going to start with the review of the Green Bay Packers game, and and we'll start with a couple of the things that we think, Rich, because this was an absolute steamroll of uh, a really good Packers team. I mean, the Niners beat them thirty-seven to eight. Aaron Rodgers had just one hundred and four <coughs> passing yards. Rodgers had never tossed more than 30 passes and gained fewer than 160 passing yards in a single game prior to Sunday night. I mean, his stat line, this is a Hall of Fame quarterback at this point who's not playing bad football. His first 18 attempts went for just 39 total yards, and it was the lowest total of passing yards for an NFL quarterback with 20-plus attempts since 1950. Man, it was a, it was a bit of a beatdown, and it was fun to watch. Yeah, definitely not what I thought was going to happen. I thought it was going to be uh, a lot closer than that. Like we had said last week, we didn't think that either of these outcomes were going to happen. I think you predicted that they might actually drop this game, and I thought that they would win real close. Um, I love being wrong when it comes to stuff like this. Absolutely love being wrong. Yeah. No, it's it's great. I was from the first snap, or not the first snap, but basically when they got that first turnover on defense on the first drive, it was like okay this is how this game's gonna go for them on defense it's gonna be great so uh, on i actually wanted to start on offense because that's not going to be the big story of the game but i but to me it was interesting to see some of the emerging playmakers on offense really begin to to take hold and that's what the niners are going to need a lot of especially if they're going to make a deep playoff run you think of the emerging set of playmakers that make you feel a bit better about this team and first you start with debo samuel because when the team needed a spark Debo really provided it. You go to the second quarter with the, the quarter winding down. The Niners are looking for that, that classic Madden double up score at the end of the first half, get the, get the kickoff at the, at the beginning of the third quarter. Um, Mostert found a little bit of success with a couple of power runs. And then all of a sudden you've got Debo Samuel doing what he does best, doing what he did in college, catching a slant pass and housing it. I mean, it was a 50 yard touchdown on the catch and run. It's something that he does very, very well. The, the Niners are going to need more of Debo Samuel winning on those slant routes uh, in order to continue to put up the offensive numbers that they're going to need against teams that they're going to be facing throughout the rest of the year. Yeah, he was just sitting inside the inside slot there running a it just looked like a little deep over route. And Garoppolo, you can see it on the all 22. He kind of just looks to his left a little bit, gets Blake Martinez to move out of that um move out of that zone in the middle of the field and everyone else is basically just one-on-one and he zipped it right in there and that 
in that window and Devo did the rest. Um, I didn't think Devo had that second gear like that because it's not really something he was known for coming into the NFL, but it's just incredible to see him take that to the house from the basically the middle of the field. Yeah, he's got the fourth most yards among rookie wide receivers, and he leads all rookies with 306 yards after the catch. I mean, the Niners are going to need, he's really rounding into form as a wide receiver, and the Niners need someone opposite of Emmanuel Sanders and, and off of George Kittle, because that's the next person that, of course, is already a star, but it's pretty clear that George Kittle makes the team go. He is that team's offensive MVP, which is weird considering Jimmy Garoppolo probably should be their offensive MVP, but that offense just looks like it's in a different category when George Kittle is on the field. And you see you see that deep shot to Kittle. That's not a play that you see often from Shanahan, uh, and it's a new wrinkle that you thought, hey, you know what, I, I may have... Uh, I know what that play is, but I've never seen Shanahan run that play before. Yeah, it's basically just... Zorro corner corner post, excuse me, Zorro corner post, say that three times fast, I guess. But the, the play looks like sale, uh, minus the, the vertical down the sideline. And basically what Kittle's doing is running a corner route. And as soon as he gets Kevin King to basically turn and run down field with him, he plants that outside foot and cuts back across the field. And there's nobody there's nobody in the middle of the field on this throw. Garoppolo has probably the nearest defender closest to him is probably 10 yards away when he throws it. And Kittle is just wide open, sprints past everybody on a uh, basically a bone chip in his ankle. If you can't catch a guy with a bone chip in his ankle running away from you, then I don't know. I don't know what to say, but he's, it's just something else. It was, it's just an amazing play all around. And I think the, one of the cooler things about the play was that Garoppolo said after the game that, hey, we had this other play called, and I think what he's referring to, uh, they, they basically in Shanahan's offense, they call it a can. They, they basically can the play to another play. It's a, it's a West Coast offense thing to do, and he canned from what I believe was 18 Zorro or 19 Zorro, which is strong side outside zone run, and he got into the Zorro corner post. So it's pretty cool when you get little tidbits like that from, you know, the players or the coaches and you can kind of go back and and look and see what they're talking about. And it's really interesting to see the play right before that, where they did a similar play action pass and and Garoppolo completes that that crossing route over to Bourne. And so the the Green Bay defense is already kind of on alert for that crosser. And, And on that long play to Kittle, effectively what they do is is that defense tries to cut the crosser. And what that means is that the safety carries or tries to get to the over route. And usually the underneath defender drops off and and lets that that receiver run across the field. The safety then comes down and picks up that receiver. Well, that's exactly what they tried to do. Uh, And what that did is it vacated the middle of the field, which is one of the reasons that Kittle was so wide open. I, I tweeted out a photo earlier today of the moment from the end zone angle where you see the pass in the air. And it's a it's just about a full frame photo of the end zone angle and there's literally not a single person in frame trying to get at George Kittle it's ridiculous how wide open he is and then you're exactly right man George Kittle is tough he Shanahan described the the bone chip in his ankle as bark falling off of a tree and that is both descriptive and like kind of harrowing the fact he's literally got a piece of his bone off of his ankle and it's just like yep you're gonna come out here and sprint away from NFL athletes. And yet that's George Kittle, man. He makes that offense go. 
And, and it really is good to see him back out on the field. I'm glad that not only what he was able to contribute to the win, but that because it was such a blowout that he didn't have to do too much and play too many snaps. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I texted a doctor buddy of mine who's actually an orthopedist. So he deals with a lot of these types of injuries and does surgeries on ankles and knees and things like that. And I said, I asked him, Hey, Kittle is playing with a broken bone in his ankle. What does that even mean? And he basically responded back is it's not a broken ankle. It's more likely an avulsion fracture, basically a ligament pulled off a small piece of the bone in his ankle, functionally an ankle sprain, hence why he's able to play. So if you needed an even more harrowing description of, of the injury, there you go. Yeah, you know, I I have no idea what that's like, but one time uh, I, in the long tradition of me having injuries that are like NFL injuries and thus me knowing exactly what they feel like, um, I got, I didn't tap fast enough in an arm bar uh, and had a similar kind of thing where it pulled a bone off of my elbow and fractured it. Um, so George Kittle and me, man, one and the same. Uh, I know exactly what that feels like to to come back from that kind of an injury. It's it's great. You know, I, I, I applaud him and commend him for playing on his ankle. <laughs> Yeah, but, my my wife said uh, my ankle hurts, and I said, "Well, George Kittle played on a yeah. on a sprained ankle and scored a touchdown." What have so, you done today? Yeah, man. Well, George Kittle, George Kittle, he he really continues the long tradition of great tight ends in San Francisco. You go back to the seventies, and you've got Ted Qualick. He was a first team All Pro. Russ Francis is probably the old the old school guy that everyone remembers. But then you got Brent Jones in the nineties, Eric Johnson in the two thousands. Uh, he was the the leading receiver in terms of tight end yards for a long time for the Niners. And, and then you've got Vernon Davis in the 2010s and now George Kittle. And there's always been a tight end that has produced in the passing game in San Francisco. And George Kittle's probably the best one of them all. And and he's probably the best. I mean, he is the best player on the 49ers team. And the offense really needed him and, and it showed against Green Bay. Yeah, I think so. I think, And I think going back and looking at Kittle's career so far, I don't think... I think he had the most yards out of any tight end. Um, I don't even think Vernon Davis eclipsed a thousand yards with the 49ers, but uh, I imagining think he did Vernon have, Davis in this offense would be crazy. I think he did have a thousand yards or over a thousand yards one year, but you're absolutely right. George Kittle has the, the record for tight end yards in one year uh, in the NFL. And that means that of course he's got yeah. it for the 49ers. Um, but now you've got, of course, another emerging or not really emerging, but another playmaker that's just emerging for the 49ers. And that's Emmanuel Sanders. We already saw what he can do healthy, and he played a little bit healthier game, it seemed like, against uh, Green Bay. I don't know if that uh, that pain-killing shot was just really, really got him amped up at the beginning of the game or if he was feeling himself or what, but he when he caught that that really kind of backslide slant on the RPO, he gets up and he does this weird wiggle first down dance. Like, oh man, it's it's great. And he he was getting in defenders' faces. He is He really is the Niners' best wide receiver. And while he didn't have a huge impact later in the game, he was able to finish the game. So his ribs probably feel a little bit better. Um, but he's that kind of wide receiver threat the 49ers need. And it's going to not really allow teams to load up in the box. Um, and so I think, Sanders, you've you got to feel good about an offensive trio of Debo, Sanders, and Kittle when you're looking at Garoppolo and you're looking at options. That is the offensive trio the Niners need, I think, to, in order to make a deep run in the playoffs. Yeah, he did. He finish the game. I didn't see him pretty much after the second half. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention, but was hoping that everything was all right. And yeah, it sounds eventually, like it is, so. yeah, eventually he just he got pulled with all the other starters. 
Um, the, the 49ers offense played some of the lowest lap snap totals of their season so far because of the blowout nature of the game. And, and that, so he didn't play late, but he was in there late in the game in the fourth quarter. So he didn't have to come out with, because of his ribs, like he did the week before. So it's good. It's good. Uh, but let's get to probably one of the more important changes the team made in the game. And that was the swap at left tackle. The Dan Brunskill era is finally upon us because you've got Justin school who was playing left tackle and he apparently was playing with some kind of a really nasty leg injury, which Sure, definitely is tough to play with an injury, but school so far this year has not been as good as Dan Brunskill. And he's been a hell of a find. He has earned the right to be the swing tackle. And in this game against the the uh, the Green Bay Packers, he was facing one of the, the better edge rushers in the NFL, and he did not allow a single pressure. Meanwhile, Justin School allowed in the same number of pass blocking snaps, uh, two hurries and was flagged for a penalty. So I think if, if Staley's not ready for that Baltimore game, I really do hope school continues because he is the, the better tackle of the two players and prove that, especially in this game, that he deserves to continue starting. Yeah, and I believe their yards per play total when school was in there was just under three, and then that shot up to about 11 after Brunskill took over. So the, the, definitely the difference was noticeable. Yeah, you know, you look at his pass blocking efficiency and for tackles with a minimum of 100 pass blocking snaps, you've got Daniel Brunskill tied for fourth in the entire NFL. That's not fourth uh, on the team. That's fourth for the entire NFL, minimum 100 snaps. So he is good at pass blocking. He's not as good of a run blocker, but when you're going up against Zadarius Smith or Preston Smith, it was definitely what allowed Jimmy Garoppolo to get a lot, uh, to have a bit more time to be able to complete passes. You know, th- there was one play, I think, where Jimmy Garoppolo did get hit by the guy that Brunskill was blocking, but that sack is actually on Jimmy Garoppolo because Jimmy Garoppolo has a way to step up into the pocket, and he's actually got Emmanuel Sanders open. And if he steps up in a bit of the void, he can actually get the ball to Emmanuel Sanders, but he tries to Tony Romo his way out of there. He tries to spin and go to the left, and he, and he drops his depth, and that's going to drive an offensive lineman crazy. Because the offensive lineman needs to know where the quarterback is. And he's going to push his defender past where he thinks the quarterback is. And and if the quarterback just floats back into where that lineman is pushing the defender, well, that's on the quarterback. That's not on Brunskill. And that's exactly why Brunskill wasn't charged with the pressure, even though his defender actually got to Garoppolo. Yeah, I remember that one. I also remember the one I think Garoppolo had the free rusher off the edge and everyone was blaming McGlinchey for that one. But I thought that was also on Jimmy G there. Yeah, they were. That, that's that's probably the only thing that you were a little concerned with in the game was the protection. That was just a bad yeah. offensive line call. It looked like they were in a full slide away from that free rusher. And, and you're right. In that situation where they're in a full slide, that edge rusher is Jimmy Garoppolo's player to get it out. But it there was no reason why they should have been in a full slide to the left. It, it was just unless they thought the corner on that side was coming on a blitz. But there's that that didn't seem like that was the case and if so you want that corner to be the free rusher you don't necessarily want the uh the the actual edge rusher to have a free run at Jimmy Garoppolo so i think for for whatever reason not sure why they were in a really really bad protection call there and it got them because they had a free rusher running right at him so i, I think McGlinchey did his job and it was just a bad bad call yeah yeah, I think uh, on Twitter, someone in talking about the whole Brunskill thing, uh, Gustav 
Linda Krona from Denmark. I keep forgetting about all of our international listeners. He described Brunskill as found money. And I really think that's a good way of describing it. Why? Because the best teams are able to make their team look and feel like they're a $300 million team, even though they're only paying them, you know, whatever the salary cap is, which is somewhere, I think, near like the $220 million or whatever. And that's how you get teams that look and feel like they can dominate and win the Super Bowl. When you have players on rookie deals or undrafted free agent contracts that are giving you the production of a starter. And that's so far what Brunskill's been able to do. And and you look at the, the production that he's been able to give you, and who knows if it'll be able to sustain itself. I'm certainly not saying that, you know, all of a sudden you got to think about sitting Staley. Staley should be and will be the starter when he returns. But being able to find a swing tackle at the salary that we're paying Brunskill is going to allow you to maybe save some money on on Sean Coleman next year and allocate that money somewhere else. So I think he's another emerging player that's earned his way to being the swing tackle, and, and I think it's great. Yeah, there aren't many teams that can say that they have a you know a third tackle that they can plug in there and everything be just fine. I mean, even school didn't play that terribly before this game. He was able to you know pretty much hold his own while Staley was out. But you know, just thinking back on it, how many teams really have what the 49ers have found with their backup linemen? And then you know, as of today, the Ravens are going to be without their center for the rest of the year. So. It really, really is lucky that they've come across Brunskill and then to some, to a certain extent, school. Yeah, and then uh, the only, the last question here on offensive playmakers I had was one that that I thought was interesting, and that's whether or not Tevin Coleman's the worst running back on the team. So I'll ask you that question: <laughs> Is because Tevin Coleman, you know, he had he had an okay game. He did. He had a really big run, uh, and, and he's been okay all year. But when you think of offensive performers, do you think that that uh, that he's the worst running back on the team or not? I'm pretty lukewarm on him. I mean, it, it's pretty, it's funny. Kyle, uh, Kyle Posey, Niners Nation editor, he'll send me a timestamp of a Tevin Coleman run or two every week, and just say, "Look at this run. He, you know, he missed this hole or whatever." And it's true. Like he does miss a lot of, a lot of vision, or not a lot of vision, but he misses a lot of lanes that he probably should take when he's running behind his blockers and things like that. Now, I don't think he's the worst because what he sort of lacks in the running game he makes up for in the passing game if they don't bring him back next season is is the team going to take a hit at that position i don't think so so his 3.9 yards per attempt are tied to the lowest of the four running backs with jeff wilson you've got raheem mostert who averages 3.25 yards after contact coleman is just at 2.74 and coleman and mostert have the same number of avoided tackles after a run at 16 despite the fact that coleman has 42 more carries than Mostert. I'm not saying that Kevin Col- that Tevin Coleman is a bad running back. I actually think he's he's probably an above average running back, and he's proven to be that here with the 49ers and in his time with Atlanta. But but I do think that he's not necessarily the best running back on the Niners for sure. That's Matt Breida, and I do think there's a case for Tevin Coleman not being as good as Raheem Mostert. I think Raheem Mostert probably isn't as dynamic in the passing game like you say, and he's got that damn fumbling issue. Uh, but even Jeff Wilson has provided some value here. I think it's it's a funnily worded question because I think even if he is the worst running back on the team, that doesn't mean he's a bad running back. Uh, all, all that to say that the Niners have an embarrassment of riches even at running back, and they're not paying that position. Well, they are paying that position a lot of money because one of them's on IR. Uh, but eventually that money's going to go away, and yeah. you've got Coleman on you know just a couple million dollar salary, and everyone else is basically <clears throat> making peanuts 
another way where the Niners can gain some efficiency and have gained some of the running back position. Uh, and, and he's not a bad running back, um, but he may not be the best running back on this team. Um, and, and that's a good place to be when you're running the kind of offense that the Niners are running. Yeah, I just don't think that he's the kind of guy that should be in there on first and second down sometimes. You know, he wasn't even in that role in Atlanta when Shanahan was there. And here he's kind of taken, you know, for the most part, taking those snaps away, um, especially now with Brita being out. But, you know, I think you probably get a little bit better production on first and second down when Mostert's in there. At the same time, the running game the last couple of weeks, well, at least before this week, wasn't, you know, what it should have been, regardless of who was back there. Yeah, the Niners finally did get back to their 100-yard rushing ways, and they had a couple of, of power runs there, which I, I didn't see often earlier. They, you, they do sprinkle some power in, and they did against the Packers as well. A couple of the big runs they had, uh, one uh, with Raheem Mostert was actually on power. I think the one with Jeff Wilson early on was on power as well. So Shanahan's definitely mixing some things up, did so against the, the Packers. And on offense, I mean, the offense did exactly what it needed to do when it needed to do it between the long pass to George Kittle or the, the Debo Samuel catch and run and, and keeping the chains moving or some gains with first downs. But really, the story was the statement they made on defense. Of course, we opened the show with those stats where they held Aaron Rodgers to basically nothing in the passing game. And, and that defense performance, defensive performance was something to watch. Yeah, just incredible. I'm I'm covering it for Niners Nation, just a few of the plays this week because I'm on a compressed timeline this week, as is everybody else probably. But uh, a couple of the plays that stood out, at least early on, were the first, the very first turnover. And the only way to describe the pass rush on that play with, with Rodgers' fumble is just complete chaos. I, I don't know how else to describe it. it you've got defensive linemen coming from every possible avenue. You've got Fred Warner who comes in there and cleans up with the sack, the strip sack. Bosa who nearly takes it back for a touchdown on the recovery. If you just watch it in full speed, it's just, how how do you describe it? I don't know. It's just completely, completely chaotic. And I can't imagine what's going through Roger's mind on that play. I mean, Fred Warner has been really focusing on forcing fumbles this year. And he's got three forced fumbles on the year. And I mean, he's consistently going after that football, man. Uh, He is every time he tries to make the tackle, he is punching and punching and punching. And it's I mean, you're it's like what you're going to you're going to get one. And he did against Rogers forced that fumble and it completely changed the tide of the game. Yeah. And then the little just a little heads up play he had when he saw the ball on the ground to just kind of swat at it to knock it backwards, put it in better reach. Knock. Yeah. Knock it backwards for Bosa to recover. It just. Completely heads up play there. Yeah, he was all over the field in this game. And in the run game, he does have some problems with tackling. And he does have, you know, he's not the best in the run game. He really does provide more value in the passing game. But this game, he really was all over the field, especially when it came to some of those inside runs. I mean, he was laying some wood on running backs and not letting Aaron Jones, who's pretty explosive and a really, really kind of player that can break some tackles. uh, He was not letting him get additional yardage. No. Well, the what's interesting, at least on defense, is that the it seemed like the Packers were trying to do a, a poor man's version of what Cliff Kingsbury did against the Niners. And they tried to do some of the screen stuff. They tried some bubble screens to Adams on the opening drive. Uh, they basically that's the new crack toss against the 49ers defense where 
Now teams are going to try. They've seen that on film. They've seen it be successful. But you've got the Niners defense who, outside of a couple of missteps, were absolutely able to rally. Didn't get them a whole lot. And, and really, the, the best play that the Packers seem to have were penalties uh, against Richard Sherman uh, or a couple of other players that, that really put them in position to score because the Niners defense was suffocating, uh, suffocating the entire game. Yeah, they were calling a lot of these penalties on both sides really tight by the letter of the law, basically. the I kind of chuckled when I saw the Devontae Adams taunting. I think everyone thought that, that was kind of weak. And then Sherman's, I'm not sure what led to Sherman's penalties there, but that also just kind of kind of weak because, you know, at a certain point you can hit the receivers outside when the quarterback is outside of the pocket. Now, should he have probably shoved the guy like that down to the ground? I don't know. I don't, maybe somebody, maybe somebody said something to him or maybe the receiver said something at that point. I don't know, but they, they were just really, you know, you see him, you make a good play, Bosa gets a sack and then you get a holding penalty on the other end or, or maybe that was Sherman's penalty. I'm not, I can't remember, but it just how tight that they were calling everything. And it just kept that one scoring drive alive for the Packers in the third quarter I mean, my fantasy team, which has Devontae Adams on it, really was okay with that. I mean, you gave him up, you gave him one touchdown, two point conversion, it's fine. But the the thing that got me about that was that it was it's a completely legal play that Sherman has been doing basically his entire career. He would do it to Crabtree all the time when he was a member of the Seahawks. When whenever you've got a quarterback running out of the pocket, you are fine to hit the receiver, and you are coached, yeah. especially if you're near the sideline, to push that receiver out of bounds because then. You never have to worry about that receiver again. He can't be the first person to touch the ball again. So it's a, it's something that Sherman has done his entire career and is doing now. And for whatever reason, those refs wanted to call it a really tight game. I think you're exactly right. But you, you know the yeah, I think it's I think it has more more to do with the player safety standpoint. I mean, if he just hits him and doesn't knock him down, they probably don't call it. But if you're right in front of the side judge or the back judge and you shove the guy down or you hit him. You just completely level him. You know they're they're probably more prone to err on the side of caution and call it. And at that point, you know they're not going to pick up the flag unless they conference about it. But I do I do think that it was probably more of a uh, player safety thing than anything. Now this was the return of Akella Witherspoon. He was supposedly not going. He's going to get his starting job back, but the team seems to be slow playing him getting his starting job back about as long as they can play it. But you had Emmanuel Mosley and Akella Witherspoon play in this game, and they had a roughly even number of snaps. We've got Mosley with 44 and Spoon with 47. Who did you think had the better game between Emmanuel Mosley and Akella Witherspoon against the Packers? Probably Witherspoon, just because Mosley had the one penalty. But for for the most part, I thought they were pretty evenly. Um, I thought they were pretty evenly, e- equally as good. I didn't think either of them made any egregious errors or anything. And I think Witherspoon ended up, you know, getting in there probably the rest of the game because I think didn't Mosley leave with a, a banged up ankle or something. He I, did. I think that's what Shanahan said after the game. Yeah. So we've got a drinking game rule and I, you know, it's basically the Akella Witherspoon rule where the ball is like super overthrown and he still does the incomplete <laughs> signal. And he did that a couple of yeah. times in this game where he was targeted in a couple deep shots but he, had, he did have the benefit of a couple off throws. Both were targeted five times. Mosley allowed three receptions for 20 yards. Witherspoon, one reception for seven. 
But I did think that Witherspoon got a couple of benefits uh, from some bad passes from Rodgers, who just seemed, I mean, understandably off all night when he's constantly getting hit and has to worry about where that rusher is coming from. I thought Mosley probably played a little bit stronger game, even if they were relatively uh, even overall. I thought Mosley, as a tackler, was much better. I mean, there was that second down play where it was second and 18. It's a quick out, and Mosley just comes up and pops the receiver. I mean, he is an aggressive tackler, more so aggressive than I think I've seen Witherspoon. And, and luckily, Witherspoon isn't, isn't like a non-aggressive guy. He does get his nose in there and has shown that he can do that in the past. But I think Mosley is still a notch above him in that regard. And, and I do think that Mosley overall played really, really good in coverage. I think it's, again, a good problem to have. You've got two good corners, yeah. uh, you know, both, one of which is on their rookie deal, the other of which is on you know, an undrafted free agent contract in, in Mosley. Um, I think he's an undrafted free agent. But again, found money. This is where you gain efficiencies and you can spend a bunch of money uh, on a talented area like the defensive line. And, and that's how you do it. You get really good performance out of players like Mosley and Witherspoon. And they had great games against Devontae Adams, man. The, well, this is not Greg Maben out here. These guys were showing that they can lock these these wide receivers up. And the Niners did play band coverage a lot. They blitzed, you know, about 25, 26% of the time. They played man coverage a lot, especially early on. And and Sala trusted his defensive backs to look at Devontae Adams and the Valdez Scantlings of the world and say, Yep, you got it. And it worked. Yeah, even on Witherspoon's the the overthrow, the over, the one you're thinking about where he did the wave off. I still thought he had really good coverage on that. He was squeezing the receiver pretty good to the sideline anyways. And if anyone's going to make that throw, it would probably be Rodgers. But it was, you know, overthrown. And it would it would have been a tight window throw for sure. So I don't really knock him for that. You know, he's going to he's gonna celebrate like that all the time. I'd, I, we all got a chuckle out of it. But I thought, you know, the coverage was still pretty good. And then as far as playing man coverage, Sherman said after the game that they were – Basically, they weren't even worried about the, the the passing game. They were really just worried about stopping Aaron Jones in the running game. And it showed, you know, they weren't really concerned with Rodgers rolling out or hitting any big shots or anything like that. Because even in even the one deep shot that Rodgers did hit was knocked out by, I think it was uh, Jimmy Ward or, or Tart maybe. It was Jimmy Ward, yeah. Yeah, either way, it was a pass Graham should have been able to hold on to, and he didn't. So they, you could just tell that they... This game, compared to last year, they just weren't concerned with those deep throws like that and giving up the big play. So speaking of Jimmy Ward, I'd, I'd love to hear your player of the game because I've got a couple of options. I'm not sure which I'm going to go with yet, and, and it depends on whether or not you snatch him up first. So uh, in terms of player of the game, who do you think really shine in the game against Green Bay? Uh, I'm going to do the cliche thing here and say George Kittle. It's just really... Uh, it's really evident and really obvious how much this offense relies on his availability. And it's just complete night and day difference, even from, you know, one week ago with the Cardinals game when he didn't play. So that's going to be my player of the game. I think he had six catches for 129 yards in that touchdown. And there's, I just, I don't know. He's just not human. It's incredible to watch him play though. Yeah, it was an absolute lot of fun. He had over 100 yards. I think he had like 121-ish yards on the day. And of course, he had that big, long catch and run. I mean, the, the 49ers offense really does flow through him, and it's really fun to see. You know, for me, it's really difficult to choose between Fred Warner and Jimmy Ward. 
And and I think it's probably going to go to Fred Warner only because I think Jimmy Ward's been the player of the game already this year. But Jimmy Ward was all over the field. He made some great plays. But Fred Warner, man, this was probably his best game as a 49er. We talked about the opening game fumble. Um, and, and I think that especially in the run game, he was incredibly dialed in and he did not miss any tackles. He was flying all over the field. And, and that's exactly what the Niners need out of that linebacker position. I think if he's he if he can continue to play at the level at which he played against Green Bay, the Niners are going to be in a much better place on defense. And you're not going to see as many runs as you had in earlier games where Teams were able to get, uh, you know, kind of their, those run lanes opened up because the Niners' run defense is sneakily, like, not great. And and if they indeed focused on the, the run game, like you said, I think that Warner was really a key cog in making that run game completely shut down and, and making the Packers look as inept on offense as they ended up being all game. Yeah, and he's really someone who's had these flashes for the majority of his career the last season and a half and. Yeah, this I would agree. This game, he it was a solid all-around performance for him in both phases. All right, well, that wraps up our discussion of the Green Bay game. It was an absolute fun game to watch, and, and now we go to the rundown, the midweek stories. Uh, just a couple of tidbits uh, from the game or that were out in the sphere uh, that I thought would be interesting to bring up. But uh, let's get to one is a couple of three safety plays from the 49ers that I thought were interesting while I was watching the film. Uh, they had two at least that I saw, and I think they had even maybe one more. But you got a third and three uh, in the first quarter, and then a fourth down in the third quarter, where you've got uh, Tarvarius Moore actually as the third safety. In I'm curious if that's preparation for what may be more safety play against the Ravens here uh, in this next week. That's a good catch. I did not did not pick up on that when I was rewatching it. Yeah, it was uh, in on the third and three play in the first quarter. He basically had to come out and play man coverage uh, on a running back that flexed out. Uh, and then on a fourth down in the third quarter, um, he does kind of lose Jones and gives up the first down. It's actually the only, I think, conversion that Green Bay had on the day in third or fourth down, uh, maybe until the end of the game there. But it was fourth down and uh, and four, I think, in the third quarter. Pressure starts to get to Rodgers, and the running back bails out and actually gets into the route. But at that point, he had already been rushing. Moore had been rushing, so he loses him. But yeah, interesting to see him as the extra defensive back that came in there uh, and not someone else. So that's kind of it. Uh, The other is that it seems like teams are playing some more Tampa 2 against the 49ers. Arizona ran it against the Niners, and the Packers had a three-safety look that, again, alerted me. And all of a sudden, it just turns into Tampa two. But that safety was staying in the middle of the field. I thought it was going to be some kind of a uh, some kind of a weird exotic coverage. But nope, Tampa two seems to be on the rise. And I think with the way Shanahan attacks the middle of the field, teams are thinking that a return to the Tampa two might be a way to stop them. Yeah, and the Packers actually do play a lot of three safety coverages. You know, outside of just playing the Forty ers it's something watching some of their games in the past that I've picked up on. Uh, they do de- they do definitely bring in a third safety a good chunk of the time. So I think that's just a Mike Pettin thing. Yeah, and I mean I guess if you've got Darnell Savage, you can kind of move him all over the place. Uh wouldn't be good it wouldn't be a bad idea to <clears throat> make him an eraser in the middle of the field and, and that's what they try to do, but uh it didn't uh it didn't exactly go well for their defense overall, even if it was successful actually uh, on that one individual play. Um because it was a play that stopped the uh it stopped the the 
vertical from the running back where they had basically two or three verts on one side of the field uh, with the running back being one of them completely shut the play down because they had that extra uh, person in the middle of the field so it worked on that one play but still did not uh, overly it didn't overly impact the win Uh, but lastly the Niners now have a 59% chance to win the division per 538 and a 54% chance at the bye because of that huge win uh, against the Green Bay Packers so it was a good win, uh, but now the 49ers gauntlet continues. They turn their attention to Baltimore. But before we get into that breakdown, let's take just a brief break to hear from our sponsors. It's Baltimore. The Super Bowl bugaboo. This is a team that is the, the, the second of the three teams that the Niners are going to face that have an 800 winning uh, percentage or better. That's really the first time in the Super Bowl era that a team has done that since week 10 to play three teams that have an 80% winning percentage or more. And this is the second of three for the 49ers. The Baltimore Ravens are absolutely on a hot streak. They've got 30 or more points in their last five games. They've only punted twice in their last three games. And in both of those drives, RG3 was in because it was basically mop-up garbage time. We just Did you watch them demolish the LA Rams on TV just like what feels like ages ago but was yesterday? Yeah, I turned it on for a little bit, and then once they went up at 21, whatever, I don't even know what the score was at that point, I shut it off. Turned it back on in the fourth quarter, saw that RG3 was in, and said, I'm fucking done with this one. Yeah, it definitely was. Uh, it was a snooze fest, at least, if you're looking for exciting games. But, man, it was uh, it was a show from the Ravens mm-hmm. because they really their offense was on display against the Rams in all of its glory. And... The first thing that I think we'll talk about is really how you defend that Greg Roman offense because the the Baltimore Ravens have really gone all in on building this team around Lamar Jackson and it's it's just so incredibly smart. They're not they're not running a wildly new offense. I mean, this is basically Colin Kaepernick's offense from 2012 and 2013, but they made a decision to build around a quarterback and not try to shoehorn a quarterback in to some rando system and it's really paying off for them. I think it's so incredibly smart. Yeah, it's the same. It's basically the same formations, the same running plays. They're doing everything that we saw at the height of the Jim Harbaugh era and with Greg Roman and Colin Kaepernick. It's just the plays are out there. The film is out there and nobody is able to keep up with the Ravens in this one. It's they're probably running it a lot more efficiently than the 49ers did with, you know, with Kaepernick and and Harbaugh. They are, and I think they're probably able to do it because I think Jackson is a better passer than Kaepernick was. But but even their ground game stuff is still very. It's the exact same stuff. And really, they they have a their run game is voluminous. I mean, you've got and their names are really funny too because you've got slap, arc, sass, and slope, and those are all just basically versions of their veer run uh, because all of their, their their zone concepts or the the concepts they rely on can be grouped into three basic categories. One are zone reads, two are veers, and three are inverted veers. Zone reads are going to be where it's exactly that. It's a zone run with a read usually on the backside of that play. Um, and, and then you've got the veer where you're actually reading a play side defender. And you've got the quarterback running outside, and then you've got the running back kind of doing that inside path. And then the inverted veer is when you have, a, again, a same side read but now you're inverting the quarterback as the inside runner and you've got the running back as the outside runner. They've got various ways to run those three 
zone run or iterations of those zone run plays. But that's basically what they do over and over and over again. And Lamar Jackson is just very, very good at making you wrong based on how you choose to play it. Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at some of the concepts again, and it's bringing back some some memories. And then I'm just, you can call them out when you see them on TV now too. So it's, like I said, there's just nothing, there's nothing wildly different about it. It's just Jackson, I think, is the better quarterback to run it. And I believe the other night, they didn't even, on Monday night, they didn't even run that many offensive plays. They were just scoring at will for the first half. And then in the third quarter, at the end of the third quarter, everybody came out. So the Rams didn't look like they had any answers for it. And that's kind of surprising with some of the talent they have. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not, not saying I'm worried, but it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with to stop the, the zone read because, you know, you, the answer to the scrape exchange and everything like that was now the arc blocks and some of the different shifts and motions that you can get out there with the lead blocker um, in front of Jackson and Ingram. So who, I have no idea how you answer this on on defense if you're Robert Sala. No clue. Yeah, you know, we talked last week about how you defend the – last week or maybe two <clears throat> weeks ago about how you defend the zone read. And, and one of the ways is to exchange gaps – um, you know, and I think that now you've got, you know, arc blocks, which it should be very familiar. And basically, if you see a blocker coming across the formation, that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to get that scraping defender over the top. But I think the the beauty of this and that really the danger for the 49ers is that these option runs also contain your rush. They slow your defensive line down and, and you get numbers on the play side because you don't have to block someone like a Nick Bosa with a player, you can block him with air. And now all of a sudden you regain that numbers advantage and you slow down that rush. And and I mean, these are really constraint plays. Typically they force the defensive end to play a certain way. It's like, Oh, I can't just run up field. I have to actually look to see what's going to happen. I have to stay home. That slows players down just a beat. And when your defensive line and we saw what the Niners defensive line could do against Green Bay when they just basically pin their ears back and go. And DeForest Buckner mentioned that in the postgame. He was like, yeah, we just knew we had to come out strong. We had to come out fast. We knew Aaron Rodgers wasn't going to really move around so we could go and get after him. And now the defensive line is going to have to do the opposite. They're going to be like, well, I don't know. And, and it's going to remove some of the teeth from that 49ers defense. And so I think that the constraint nature of this play, but also the additional numbers in the run game against the run defense, it's already a little bit weak. And and you get to you get to an interesting mix where the Niners might have some problems. Yeah, and we've seen in the past, at least this season, Bosa is prone to getting upfield as quick as he can on some of these types of plays. Um, as are some of the other defenders too. But Bosa in particular is the one that stands out. It's just something I've noticed more than others. But he has a tendency to get caught with his eyes inside on the running back, and it happened several times against the Packers on Sunday night. And he even said after the game, you know, look, I got caught with my eyes inside. Rogers faked me out pretty good on a couple of those. And they weren't even zone read runs. They were just straight, you know, play action dropbacks. So he's really going to have to harness that aggressiveness and not get upfield as quick as he normally does. I mean, he, he can do it. We, there's one play in particular I'm thinking of against the Redskins where they tried that, I, oh God, I can't remember the name of the concept. It, it looked like a shovel option where the quarterback has the option to shovel it off or to carry it out on the option with the with the pitch man. And 
he just he got upfield and he sat as the read man. Nobody blocked him and he waited for Keenum to make a, a decision. And when Keenum shoveled the ball off to the receiver, he made the tackle behind the line of scrimmage. So he he can do it. Whether or not he can consistently do it, well, I guess we'll find out in this game. But it's really gonna they're probably gonna go at him because they know he's aggressive on the at the point of attack like that. Yeah, you look at a team that found success against this offense, and uh, it, this season, you know, the, the last five games have been pretty ridiculous for the the Baltimore Ravens, but they have been contained by teams in terms of scoreboard points so far this season. You look at the Ra- the, the Cardinals, who actually held them twenty three points. Uh, you look at the uh, I was, the Dolphins, certainly not the Dolphins. They scored fifty nine on the Dolphins, uh, but you look at the Steelers. They held them to twenty six, which is still a pretty big feat so far you know that the Bengals held them to 23 the so this team is certainly not unstoppable but they seem to be on a hot streak as of late you look at the 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 kind of initial blueprint that was set in the wild card game uh when the Chargers beat the the Ravens and and really that was by playing a bare front at the at the point of attack and then playing with an extra DB to counteract the speed at that linebacker spot now, I don't think the Niners are going to play with an extra safety in the box. It'd be great if they did, but I don't think that they're going to take Greenlaw off the field and play with someone like Tarverius Moore. But I do think we might be able to, we might see some bare front looks from the team where they've got someone over the nose and then maybe a five and then maybe another four um, or something like a three, a, a zero and a five. And basically what that does is it clogs up the interior rush lanes, which when you look at the inside zone, the inside zone action on the veer uh, or even the zone read, it is the bread and butter of the Baltimore running game. And so if they can do that, then you begin to clog that up and, and you've got to make the, the read kind of a little bit difficult for, for uh, Lamar Jackson to do on the edge. And if you can do that, you can maybe kind of contain them a bit and, and not get gashed in the middle of the field. Yeah, def- definitely think maybe the bare front would be the most likely because you can get that extra overhang defender too that you wouldn't normally get on a four-man front. And and I think that the other thing the Chargers did in that wild card game is is they basically did have the end man on the line of scrimmage kind of not overly aggressive go towards <clears throat> the mesh point because that's one option that the Niners have is they can just sell out to the mesh point and say, we basically want to force Lamar Jackson to keep this ball over and over and over again by gunning, by going right to the dive back. I don't know that that's the option. I'd, I'd honestly rather have the ball in Mark Ingram's hands or Gus Edwards' hands because Lamar, Lamar Jackson's hands are, it, that's just dangerous, man. The guy's just too fast and he's too quick. And, and on the edge, I think he's incredibly dangerous. So I think you, you make Jackson give the ball, I think. And when you then have him give the ball, that's when you can start to force your other players to come in, run and support and rally. And, and I think that's where the 49ers should do it. I don't know that they should force Jackson to keep the ball because I don't think that ends well for the Niners. No, definitely not. And w- one other aspect to consider with that that I mentioned earlier is that uh, the, the Ravens center, Matt Skura, I believe his name is, is out for the year. So that's really that's greatly going to impact what they do up front. The kind of the feeling around Ravens Twitter right now is that that is a huge loss for them because of how much he is involved with along the offensive line and things like that. So force the ball into Ingram's hands or Edwards and then just eat up the interior. 
Yeah, and of course you've got tight ends to contend with here because the the drawback with going with another <clears throat> DB is that you've got you know the multiple tight ends that you're going to look at with Hayden Hurst and with Mark Andrews staring down your face. And so all of a sudden, if you go lighter in that linebacker box, uh, I think that's where those extra tight ends and extra blockers may come back and hurt you. But even in the passing game, I think the rush lanes are going to be incredibly difficult for or incredibly key for the 49ers to actually leverage and use. And and basically, rush lanes, you don't want to overcommit in any one area because if you give Lamar Jackson a gap, he's gone. And and the Niners, I think, are probably going to play more zone coverage looks behind the their defensive line just so that they can keep eyes on Lamar Jackson. But it wouldn't be a bad idea to have a, a spy on third downs if you get there. And, and I mean, this is just such a multiple offense. They can attack you in so many different ways. The Niners are going to have a really difficult time. And, and this is going to be probably, I think the Ravens are the best team in the NFL right now. Um, and, and I think that if the Niners are going to stop them on offense, the, or rather if the Niners defense is going to stop the Baltimore offense, they're going to have to pull a lot of rabbits out of their hat or the offense is going to have to score some points. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I feel even less confident about this game than probably a lot of the other ones. Now, if the Niners are going to score points, they're going to need to do so and beat man coverage in the process because Wink Martindale, which is that's like on the name, like all name team coaches list right there. Wink Martindale. Love it. Um, but he loves to play an aggressive brand of defense and he's got players to do. And I mean, Marcus Peters is playing really, really good football for them. And you've got Earl Thomas, who's in that defensive secondary as well. I mean, their defense is able to shut teams down. And so they have the players to play man. They do play a lot of man. And the Niners have had trouble beating man coverage. This is where I think the emergence of those offensive playmakers is going to be critical. Emmanuel Sanders, George Kittle, even Debo Samuel are going to have to prove that they can beat Marlon Humphrey, Marcus Peters, uh, and find some space against Earl Thomas. Because if they can't, then it's going to be a little easier for that front to shut the team down and key in on that run game. And, and I think that's where the Niners get in trouble. So this is where if these playmakers are emerging, they're going to have to make their money because I don't think they can get away with a 17 or 20 point uh, kind of output. They're going to have to score 26, 28, 32 points in order to keep pace with this Baltimore, uh, Baltimore offense. Right. And we've seen what this offense looks like without Kittle and Sanders. And I do think that's going to make a big difference in whether or not they can put some points on the board against the Ravens defense who, by the way, they're just as good as any defense out there. You know, and they're not, they're not obviously not talked about enough because of what Lamar has been doing, but I, I don't know that that's going to be an issue for an off the offense. I don't think it will be. I think they've got some pretty good answers the last couple of weeks with getting guys healthy and some of the things they've been doing, but you're right. It, you know, if they can't get those things going in the passing game with Sanders and Kittle and, and Debo and Debo's not as good at getting off the line of scrimmage against press man. If someone gets a jam on him as some of, you know, maybe someone like Dante Pettis, but who knows where where Pettis has been and what's going on with that. But if they can't do it, then it's, it's going to be a, um, a long day. And something else to consider is right now there is about an inch to a, a half inch to an inch of rain in the forecast on Sunday out there. So, oh man, that that's interesting. Drastically alter things. Yeah, incredibly interesting. Um, you know, I think that this game could ultimately tilt on some of the in-game decision making because John Harbaugh is 
the most aggressive coach in football right now when it comes to making fourth down decisions. And he's doing it in such an incredibly smart way. I think Harbaugh is the smartest head coach in the league when it comes down to fourth, to fourth down decision making. There's a great story in The Athletic that details the overall process. But in a nutshell, he's hired a 25-year-old behavioral economics major named Daniel Stern, who grew up in the Baltimore area. Dude got his degree from Yale, and he's in his fourth year with the Ravens. They basically set a strategy in the week's prep that uses in-game probabilities and dictates what they want to do given the opponent. And once they set that strategy and it leverages, you know, a couple of their models, a couple of the expected points added information, which we can we all have access to. I mean, if you played with the fourth down bot from New York Times, which I think is now dead, but that used a lot of the same type of in-game modeling based on play probability success and all these other really awesome things. He's got Daniel Stern in his headset that says, well, in this situation, in our game prep, we said we would likely go for it. And Ultimately, Harbaugh is going to call timeouts effectively to make sure they can you know, kind of regroup and make that cool, calm decision. And it oftentimes results in points. I mean, they've gone for it on fourth down so many times and it's resulted in touchdowns. Ultimately, coaches are not aggressive enough unless you're John Harbaugh and it's resulted in more touchdowns over the course of the year for the Ravens. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how he plays that fourth down decision matrix against a defense like the Niners. Yeah, this is something that really sticks out when you watch Ravens games. I think Harbaugh kind of got raked over the coals with it in the in the Chiefs game, but you know, you're on the road against the Chiefs, you've got to get points any way you can. He's obviously going to go for it when he can. And hearing now the story about Daniel Stern, which I, I believe they mentioned on the broadcast last night too. I I turned it on I think right around that point. It's really interesting to hear. And I'll have to go check that piece out, but I don't know how you coach around that other than, you know, I hope Sala has a game plan where they can get these guys into maybe a couple third and long situations and keep contain. But it, it really, you know, that, that, that tidbit really sheds a lot of light and a lot of, you know, uncomfortable feelings and probably all of us that this isn't going to be easy. No, not at all. And and I mean, it adds the extra layer of complexity where now if you know you're more likely to go for it on fourth down, your third down play calling changes quite a bit. And you don't have to get the entire yardage on third down. You can maybe run on a pass down because you know you've got two downs in order to make it happen. And, and it changes the entire calculus for what you have to defend on defense, uh, but also what's at your disposal on offense. I mean, it's so incredibly smart to do it this way and, and to lean on the the things that are likely to get you more points. And at least for the Ravens so far this year, it has, you know, going into the game against the Rams, I think they had gone for it on 12 first downs and 10 of those they converted and they all led to touchdowns. That's exactly what you want. More points wins games. And, and while the Niners this year so far haven't been, uh, they've not, not been aggressive. I think they're still like top eight, top 10 in terms of aggressiveness. They're not nearly as aggressive as the Ravens. And, and ultimately I think, it, it it could tip the scales. Um, so, you know, the, the line right now, consensus line, is the Ravens by six and a half points. Uh, do you wow. think that, yeah, do you think that's that's a lot? I mean, the over-under right now is set at about 46 and a half, which means that the the implied total for the Ravens is about 26 points, uh, and the Niners are, are going to come in at about 20 points. So what do you think ends up happening in this game? Do you think the Niners win? Do you think they cover? Uh, against a really, really dominant Ravens team. 
I think we lose this one. I think they I think they cover. I, historically, teams that go on these wild tears like this, like the Ravens, where they just put up a bunch of points, they they can't sustain that week after week. And at some point, I think they're going to come back down. Hope of hope, hoping it's this game. Not just not sure it's enough that the 49ers can get the win. Um, so I think they they lose probably 31 to maybe 24 or 28, something like that. But I think they'll definitely cover. Um, just re- real quick, I was going to throw out there, Baltimore's converting 76 point, basically about 76.5% of their fourth downs. So, yeah, that's uh, first in the league. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely going to be tough. Um, I am going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say, you know what, the Niners win this game. And I think hopefully D Ford can actually play because he is 50-50. And what sucks is that, man, we didn't even get to talk about DeMontre Moore breaking his forearm uh, on a scramble in, in, I think, the third quarter. And that's that's just too bad, man. I feel bad for him. He's playing well. He was geeked to be back on the team. And, and he's still going to be a Niner, obviously. He's just going to be on IR. But the team could have used his edge-rushing performance against uh, a team like, I think, the, the Baltimore Ravens. But hopefully D Ford can come back and help contain someone like Lamar Jackson. I mean, really, my hope is that Jim Harbaugh left a notebook behind somewhere in 4949 Centennial that says how to beat my offense. Uh, and that Shanahan found it, picked it up, and they're going to read off that play sheet and, and be able to stop Lamar Jackson because it's going to be a hell of a game. And it, if the Niners are going to lose one of the next three games, uh, or one of the next kind of Green Bay, New Orleans, Baltimore game, Baltimore game is the one to lose. Because it does yeah. not affect the playoff standings, at least in terms of number one seed, nearly as much as losing the say like New Orleans does. So overall, it's going to be a tough game, but it should be a fun one. Uh, Rich, thanks again yeah. for coming on. Yeah, anytime, man. I appreciate being here. Um, I was going to say, if Sala needs uh, some resources, I have, or we have the resource. So if you're listening hit us up. Yeah, the the super secret resource is basically Jim Harbaugh's playbook. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> All right, man. Somebody well, get us in touch with them. Yeah, we'll we'll airmail it. We'll we'll airmail it like <laughs> like a like a CJ Beathard pass on the scout team while imitating Lamar Jackson. We will we will airmail it. Uh thanks again for tuning in. Rich, where can they find you on the Twitters? Uh you can find me at Rich J Madrid and Usually I have two pieces up on Niners Nation during the week, during the season. I'm holding, trying to hold to that. And then I usually have a piece up at Football Zebras once a week, once every other week, if the rules and the officials are your type of thing. You can always follow me on Twitter at Better Rivals. And as always, go Niners. <laughs>